Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came about that while he was praying, uh, praying in, a, in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we are ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, suppose one of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he shall answer and say, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask and it shall be given. To you. Seek and you shall find. And knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, for he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Now suppose one of you, one of you fathers, is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? During the first few days uh, that I was living in Fort Worth, I had moved there to, to go to seminary at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, it just so happened, a uh, great blessing to me, that my best friend all the way through college also had moved to Southwestern and had moved in at the same time. And it was those few days after we had moved in, but before classes had started, that we had just a few days to sort of get settled. And my, my best friend Brian said, let's, let's walk around campus. Let's get to know and explore and those sort of things while we've got some time. And so we did. We, we went and found the library and walked all through the library and saw all that it had to offer. We found the student building and, and explored it. And, and then sort of toward the end of our walking around campus, we, we made our way to the, the main building right there in the middle of campus, which was where the, the, the chapel was and where most of the rooms that would house, house all of our classrooms would be. And we were, we were walking through that building and we, we came by a door that said on the door, Office of the President. Well, my friend Brian says, hey, let's go in and meet him. And I began to explain to Brian how that was not appropriate. You know, the president has other things to do, and you need to make an appointment, and you don't just barge in on his office and expect that he's going to be able to, to give five minutes, ten minutes, or whatever time, that that's just not appropriate. See, I grew up in Columbus. We know those kind of polite things. 
But while I was explaining that, in fact, even before I could even really start my full-throated explanation, Brian's already in the door, standing in front of the executive secretary, saying, hey, my name's Brian Patrick. My friend Ben's outside, and we want to meet Ken Hemphill, the president. So at this point, I think, well, you know, my poor friend, Brian, he doesn't know any better. He's a nice guy. He just doesn't know any better. And so I, I walk in the office, and I'm standing behind him, fully expecting the secretary, the executive secretary, to, to make to explain to Brian all the things that I was trying to explain to him out in the hallway. As president of the seminary, he's got things to do. You make an appointment. You don't just walk into his office and expect him to, to give you five minutes, ten minutes, or whatever. And, you know, we're just first-year students. Who are we to walk in this office and demand his time? And so I'm standing back there totally expecting that to come out of her mouth. I knew she'd be kind to him and explain to him why it wasn't appropriate. But before I could sort of have any glee in the fact that she, I was right in my uh, expectation of what was about to ha happen, she says to Brian, well, give me just a minute and I'll see if he's available. And Brian sits down. I sit down beside him. Even then thinking at any moment he's, she's going to come back, you know, having perfunctory gone back in the back office and asked President Hill if he was available. And I knew he was going to say, really, this isn't a good time. I've got things going on. And expecting her to come out, uh, you know, in just a moment or two and say, guys, I asked him. He would really love to meet you, but, but uh, this is just not a good time. The next thing I know, Ken Hemphill was a very, is a very tall, commanding man. Next thing I know, here comes the president of the seminary. He comes out. He says, boys, how are you doing? And Brian says, well, we're doing great. My name is Brian Patrick. This is my friend, Ben. And we just wanted to stop by and meet you. And, and President Hemphill said, well, that's wonderful. Let's sit down and just talk a minute. He asked us all about our families and where we were from and how the Lord was leading in our life. In about 30 minutes we spent in his office, he freely gave us of our time and had a wonderful time meeting him and talking about where the seminary was going. And he was so glad to meet us and all those sort of things. When we ran out of stuff to talk about, we, we excused ourselves and left. And forever since after that, I have thought there was, all, there was an opportunity there that I could have missed because I was too polite. I was too sophisticated to walk in the door and ask for some time. But Brian, because I was with my friend Brian and he wasn't as sophisticated and he wasn't as polite, he went in and, and asked the question. And because he asked the question, we had an opportunity to sit down and have a great conversation with President Hemphill. It was a great experience that I would have missed, frankly, because I was too dignified to ask. These two parables are Jesus' response to his disciples' request to teach them how to pray. And so when we walk through both of these stories, we must keep in mind how, what, their, what their purpose is. They are to teach us principles about how we are to approach the Lord in prayer. They are teaching us principles in how God responds to us in our prayer. So as we consider this passage, I want us to see first that we are to approach Jesus in prayer, and I'm going to phrase this this way, like children. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that in just a minute. But our approach to the Father in prayer is to, in a very real sense, be undignified. And then secondly, I want us to see how the Lord responds to our prayer. And, and that is that the Lord answers, that God will answer your prayer, and that the Lord's heart toward his children is not only just to answer, but to give good gifts. And I want us to see today what that good gift is and not miss that. So let's begin with how are we to approach the Lord. We must learn to approach the Lord like children. 
So Jesus begins with this first parable, and he tells this parable about a neighbor going to what he says is a friend's house. Suppose you go to a friend's house. Somebody's shown up at your house. They, they've been on a long journey. You don't have anything to give them. And so you go next door to your neighbor, and you're asking your neighbor, and Jesus says it's in the middle of the night, and you're asking your neighbor for some bread so that you can have something to give to the unexpected guest. And there's this, there's this exchange. The neighbor, your friend says, go away. So it's not the right time. It's not an appropriate time. It's not good for me. But Jesus says, because of your persistence, eventually your friend gives you what you need and you're able to, to, uh, to meet your, your, your need of the one who came. We're to approach like children. And what I mean by that is first is that we are to seek the Lord with intimacy. So to understand the first illustration, I think it's helpful to understand the differences between a first century home and our homes. So the homes that you and I live in, modern homes, are frankly built for air conditioning. And we can all say amen to that, can we not? They're built for air conditions, which means some of you, even if you live in an older home, you haven't opened the windows of your home in a very long time. We don't open our windows, we, we, we keep our windows shut, we keep our air conditions going, and, and, and not only that, but we typically have multiple rooms, and we typically um, spread out. So if you've got space in your home, mom and dad have one bedroom, the kids have other bedrooms, and some of you have enough where each of your children have their very own bedrooms. And at night you shut the house up and you lock the front door, and if I were to come to your house in the middle of the night, I would come to your front door, I would ring your doorbell, and if you wanted to ignore it, I guess you could. And you could just stay in the quietness of your house. And one of the cool things about air-conditioned, insulated homes is once you're inside and you shut the doors, you really don't hear much of what's happening on the outside. And so it's possible to be totally disconnected with what's happening around your house. Now, a first century home would be very different. First of all, they wouldn't have anything in the windows, and the house would be built for breezes coming through. And so it would have been possible if you needed to speak to your neighbor, you wouldn't go to the front door. You could literally go around to the house, to the opening, the window opening, to where your neighbor was sleeping and speak to them right through the window. That's a little weird and freaky, isn't it? But that's how you could have done it. And secondly, there would not have been multiple bedrooms. The family could have all slept, would most likely have all slept in the same room. And so here's the image, and especially for those of you who have young children, you'll appreciate this. You've gotten everybody asleep. That's a miracle in and of itself. Amen? And it's in the middle of the night, and you're in bed asleep, and your neighbor, who Jesus in mean, this story says is your friend, so it's not somebody you don't like, but it's your neighbor. They come around to your window. Hey. Hey, are you up? <laughs> no, I'm not, but no, I am. Hey, hey, I need some bread. Now, your first thing you're trying to do is shush your neighbor, right? Shh. You're going to wake the kids up. Y'all know that fear of waking the kids up? Those of you who have older children, can you remember that fear of waking the children up? Your whole world used to revolve around keeping the house quiet so that the babies don't wake up. So you can understand you're in bed, you've got your family all in the same room, and your neighbor, your friend, or used to be your friend, is at the window saying, hey, hey, I need you to get up and get, and you're just going, shh, just be quiet, go away. Kids are in bed, the door is locked, come back in the morning. No, man, I got to have bread tonight. Somebody showed up, I didn't know they were coming, and can, can you just get up and give, no, just go away. But Jesus says, because you won't leave the window. Which, if you can understand the story, and if you've ever had young children, what's going on is, listen, if I just get up and give you the bread, will you go away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
And so they give the bread. So that's the context of which Jesus is telling this story. Now, even though much is different from our world and, and the first and true world, um, the, the story very much translates, I think, to what Jesus is trying to communicate, and that is that there is a social transgression happening here. Uh, there, there's the disturbing of the, of the family in the middle of the night. There, there's a breaking of etiquette here. This is just not how you're supposed to behave. In fact, in verse 8, the, the New American, the, the American uh, Standard Bible translates the word there as persistence. He says, because of your persistence, your friend gets up and gives you the bread. But this word can also be translated as shameless or audacity. In fact, it means a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. In other words, it's not right to go up to the neighbor's bedroom window and wake them up in the middle of the night. Can we say amen to that? Maybe y'all have not, I'll start waking y'all up in the middle of the night then, okay? But let me just be very clear. I don't want you waking me up in the middle of the night unless you've got a really good reason. The idea here is not that just the persistence. The idea here is that you've breaking the, you're breaking the, the protocol. You're breaking the etiquette. You're, not, you're acting shameless in this context. This is not how friends and neighbors are to behave. Now, often when we study this passage, we teach that we should be persistent in prayer before the Lord. That is certainly true. Don't want to take anything away from that. But I think Jesus is teaching us something much more important here. Do not think that persistence is the main idea. Rather, I think that being shameless in our approach is the main idea. And this is why I say we are to approach the Lord like children, that we are to seek him with intimacy. Children do this naturally. This last year, as we've all been staying home in pandemics and those sort of things, some of you have had to work from home. And if you're working from home and you're trying to do a Zoom meeting and look all professional and those sort of things, do your kids care about any of that? Do they care that, that you're having a meeting with your boss? No, they, if they want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, they come right on into the Zoom meeting, don't they? Hey, Mom, I'm hungry. Can you fix me a sandwich? Hey, mom's brother or sister hurt my feelings, pushed me down. Because children are shameless in their intimacy approach to their parents. They don't care if it's an appropriate time. They don't care if they've been there a hundred times before. Children are not concerned with what, what parents are giving their attention to. Children are intimate in their approach to the Lord. They're shameless in their approach to the Lord and to their parents. They'll come anytime, anyway, when they have a need. And I think that's the point of this passage. The story Jesus tells us is one where a request is made at an inappropriate time, but because of the shameless persistence of the request, it is granted. This is not a teaching that we just... Uh, we must not just give up and, and we must, must give persistence in our praying and we'll get what we want. That's not the idea here. Now, this is a teaching that we are to seek the Lord with the intimacy of a child, that we're to be shameless in our approach with the Lord, going to him over and over, knowing that he will receive us well. In fact, connected to that, I would say not only are we uh, to, be, to be intimate, but we are also to be singular in focus and confidence. Children not only seek help from their parents with intimacy, they also are singular in their focus and confidence. Now, I'm thinking here mostly of young children. We see singularity of focus and confidence in this parable as well. The request for bread was not made up and down the street with all the neighbors. No, they went to a friend. 
And they stayed right there at that house until the, the need was met. And the friend was able to meet the need and give all that was needed. Likewise, our prayers are to be singular in focus and confident in the Lord's ability. Singular in focus, meaning that we seek the Lord alone. I just want to press this with you. Listen to me carefully. Everyone in this room has different needs right now. Some of the needs in your life right now are so heavy, they're consuming everything you think about. And dear friends, like a little child going to their parents only for help, we need to seek the Lord in singularity of focus, believing that our help comes only from the Lord. Singular in focus and confident in the Lord's ability, the trust that He alone can provide. Let me tell you something, dear friends. All needs... But there are some particular moments in your life where the needs are so stark and real that you recognize, and you ought to recognize this, that there is no other help unless it comes from the Lord. And it's good to be reminded, dear friends, that not only do we seek the Lord for our help, but that he is able to meet those needs. The test of your focus and your confidence comes by way of your persistence and waiting on the Lord. Listen to me carefully. Do you focus your attention on the Lord as your only source of help? Or are you going up and down the street asking every neighbor you can? Do you wait on the Lord to act knowing that he is able, he only is able to act? Or are you trying other things as well, hoping that something might stick? The hymn writer said, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything. To God in prayer. Approach the Lord like children. And then Jesus has this, this three-part teaching that connects the first parable with the second parable. And, and I'll just say sort of as, a, as, a, as an overview of all three of these things that we are to seek and find. We find it in verse, beginning in verse 9 where he says, And I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And he, him who knocks, it shall be opened. Just walk through these three together. First, God provides. Tying these two parables together is this three-part admonition to ask, seek, and knock. And the first command uh, it, it, to, to ask is a simple reminder that it is God who provides. Not only does God provide, but his provisions and blessings are freely given to his children. Ask and you shall, that's a definitive, you shall receive. The abundance of God is available to those who ask. We'll see in the second parable, the heart of every father is to bless their children. Here we see it as well, that God does not withhold his provisions and blessings to manipulate us, to harm us, to cause us to beg, to bring about any suffering. The heart of God is to supply our needs. Paul writes to the Philippians, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Dear friends, the provisions of God are available to his children. We are to ask, and when we ask, we shall receive. Not only are we to ask and receive because God, God provides well for us, but, but God reveals. He says, uh, seek and you shall find. 
I think there's a reality here that God desires for us to know him, that God desires for us to know his truth, that God desires for us to enjoy the blessings that flow from knowing him and his truth. We'll see this more clearly in just a moment when, we, when I get to my last point. But here, as Jesus says, seek and you shall find, we understand that the desire of God is for us to find him. And I think connected to that is to know him. Listen, I think this is a glorious, beautiful promise. You will not be left searching. You will not be frustrated with illusion or misdirection. God will actively work to help you find him and know his truth. We, cannot, we can say not only seek and find, but also the more you seek and the more you find. I don't have great time for this this morning, but one of the heartbreaking realities of pastoral ministries is that I interact a lot with, with people who are satisfied with nominal and superficial knowledge of God's truth. They're satisfied with a nominal and a superficial relationship with Jesus. They're satisfied with a nominal and superficial knowledge of the Bible. And when times are fine and everything's going well, the kids are behaving and there's plenty of money in the bank and the job's going well, that seems to not bother them at all. And yet oftentimes when the crisis comes, they're, they're desperate to know the truth. And because they've been satisfied with, with knowing so little and not seeking after the Lord, they find themselves frustrated when crisis comes. And what breaks my heart is so often, even when those crises subside, they're happy to go right back to being nominal and superficial. What breaks my heart about that is I know that there is a deep, deep, deep well of glorious truth. And if you'll seek the Lord, you'll find him. You drink from that well, you'll never drain it. And it's better, it's more blessed, it's good. But for many of us, satisfied with taking sips from puddles rather than drinking from the deep well of God's truth. God provides. God reveals. Knowing God and the power of his word is available to any who will seek and find, and God receives. No one who seeks the presence of God is denied. Now, many will refuse to knock and never know the Lord. Many will refuse to seek and never find grace, but no one who seeks will not find, and no one who knocks will not have the door opened and then welcomed in. Dear friends, that is an amazing testimony to God's grace. The requirement of access before the Lord is knocking, and the door shall be opened. Somebody say amen. Zechariah said, therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Knock and the door shall be opened. Malachi says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Knock and the door shall be opened. James says in chapter 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Knock and the door shall be opened. Dear friends, seek the Lord. Knock and it shall be opened. Find and seek. 
But then there's this second parable. And frankly, I think this parable gives light to understand everything that came before it. So Jesus tells the parable about fathers giving gifts. And he, he really is using hyperbole here. So he says, those of you who are fathers, your, your son comes up to you and he asks for some fish. Who, who of you would give him a snake? I can guarantee you it wouldn't be me. And your son asked for a scorpion, uh, excuse me, your, your son asked for uh, an egg. Would you give him a scorpion? And of course, the obvious answer to that is no. Jesus says, those of you, even those of you who are evil, that's a little stinging, isn't it? But his point is, every person in this room, whether you know Jesus, whether you don't know Jesus, whether you're the most righteous person or the most wicked person, every person in this room, you know how to give good gifts. And not only do you know how to give good gifts, you poll every parent in this room and every grandparent in this room, and I will, you will find that not only do you know how to give good gifts, but there's just something built inside of us that we desire to give good gifts. The, the, the secret truth of Christmas morning is, is that the, the ones who give the gifts get more joy than the ones who receive the gifts. We love to see the joy on faces and, and delight when a good gift is received. I want you to see two truths that I think we can pull from this parable. The first is that the perfect God gives perfect gifts. The heart of God is to give his children good gifts. Let's just begin there. I don't know what your opinion of the Heavenly Father is, but the heart of God towards you, no matter who you are or what you've done or where you come from, the heart of God toward you is to provide and to give you good gifts. With this parable, I think Jesus is laying the foundation for the last sentence in verse 13. We'll get to that in just a moment. It's not only that God can or will give good gifts, but rather that God only gives good gifts. Every parent, especially parents of young children, receive thousands of requests from your children daily, hourly. Can I have some candy? Can I just watch just five more minutes of TV? It's never five more minutes, by the way. Can I have just a little bit more phone time? Can I stay up late? Can I sleep late? Can I go to a friend's house? Can I have this? Can I have that? Will you buy that? Can we go there? If you are a parent, if you know a parent, then you'll also know that every parent will tell you that it often feels like, especially when you have young children, that the word you use most in your home is the word no. No, you can't have that mega chocolate bar. No, you can't stay up till midnight. No, you can't run the streets of Waycross to 3 a.m. in the morning. No, you're not going to wear that. <laughs> know this and know that. Now, Kids, listen to me. Parents, affirm with me. We say no not because we don't love our children. And we say no not because 
We don't want our children to have enjoyable things. In fact, it's the very opposite. Parents say no a lot to request of their children because what is asked for is not good. Parents desire to give not just gifts, but to give good gifts to their children. I know the broccoli is not appreciated, but oftentimes it's a better gift than the chocolate bar. Amen? I know. I know. Parents provide what is good even when something else is asked for. And parents, this is good and godly, and you ought to keep doing it. Jesus says, listen, even evil parents know how to give their children good gifts. How much more does your heavenly Father, who, by the way, is perfect, give even better gifts? And I think we can say our heavenly Father only gives good gifts because the perfect God gives perfect gifts. And that brings us to the very last sentence. And I think this is key to understanding the entirety of this passage. So look with me in verse 13. Let's read it together. If, then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, here it is, here's the key, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The best gift, the very best gift, is the gift of salvation. There is a danger when reading and studying and interpreting this passage to read it, to, to study it disconnected from this last part of verse 13. Without verse 13, you can interpret this passage only in the context of asking for things and personal blessings. And so without verse 13, you can say, you know what we ought to, Jesus says, asking you shall receive, dear God, I ask for a brand new car. <laughs> Amen. And a boat and a truck to pull the boat and a camper too. I mean, while we're asking, why not just put the list down? A bigger house, nicer clothes, better job. But verse 13 interprets, it, 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 it illuminates our understanding of everything that goes before. I believe verse 13 is the key to understanding the whole passage. Jesus asked, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? The asking, the seeking, the knocking is not about receiving the things of this world. It's not that God doesn't provide those things. But that's not the point of the passage. And that's not the best gift of the Lord. The asking, the seeking, and knocking is firstly about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and salvation. Let's just say right now, dear friends, if you have everything the world has and you are not saved by the blood of Jesus, you have nothing. And whatever good you think the things of this world are, those things will be burned up in eternity. They will not last. They have no permanence. And they're not good compared to the goodness of salvation. Receiving the Holy Spirit in salvation is better than temporary physical healing. If you're sick today, no doubt you've been praying for God to heal you. But friends, if God heals you of whatever is ailing you this moment, the Bible says it's appointed to each of us once to die, meaning death is still coming. 
And so if you're healed today, but you don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit and salvation, what do you have? The gift of God and of salvation is better than worldly wealth. I've heard it said, I don't know who, I've heard it attributed to Rockefeller. I'm not real sure he said it, but the question was asked, how much money do you have to have to have enough? And he said, I don't know, just a little bit more than what I have right now. That's where we all live, isn't it? How much of our prayer life is about, God, if I just had a little bit more. And the truth is, friends, if you had all that you're asking for and more, and you really did have so much worldly wealth that you could not imagine how you were going to spend it all or use it all, and you had all of that and everything the world had to offer, and you don't know Jesus, that is absolutely worthless. Receiving the Holy Spirit and salvation is better than the avoidance of suffering. It might be right now that you are suffering. And it may be that you're asking God, dear God, relieve me from this. But friends, if you live a life that is nothing but pleasantries, the grass is always green at your house, the kids are always behaving, your marriage is perfect, your career is always advancing, and you never have a moment of difficulty or suffering, and you don't know Jesus, it's a squandered life. Receiving the Holy Spirit and salvation is better than worldly pleasures. There are some nice things in this world. I love a banana pudding. Amen. It's good. I love caramel cake, by the way, church. Just so you know, I'm just not just putting that out there. It's good. But for all the pleasures this world has to offer, if you have them all, you don't know Jesus you're happily marching to hell. The gift of God has, this gift of God has been provided. The gift of salvation has been made available. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is, it will be received by all who ask, who seek, who knock. So if I've, as I've been studying this passage all this week, this is what's been in my mind. Chicken nuggets or a fine meal. We have some little ones in our church who the only thing that they'll eat is Burger King chicken nuggets. Now, you can pull them aside, sit them down, and explain to them those chicken nuggets aren't really chicken. <laughs> I don't know what they are. <laughs> they may have some chicken parts in them, <laughs> but that's not real chicken. And they'll look you in the eyeball, and they'll say, I don't care. I want Burger King chicken nuggets. You can say to them, i tell you what I'll do. On me, we'll go to the finest restaurant in all the state of Georgia. You know one of those restaurants that doesn't have the prices on it? You got to have a good friend that takes you there. And you can say to them, we'll go to the finest restaurant, and when we sit down, we will say to the wait staff, I want the most expensive meal you have. Bring it to the table. I'm going to pay for it. You eat it. And you know what they're going to say to you? All I want is chicken nuggets. 
And in fact, if you're foolish enough to take them to that expensive meal and pay for a, uh, an expensive meal and you pay the check, what you're going to have to do on your way home is stop by Burger King and buy them some chicken nuggets because they're not going to eat the expensive meal. They're going to wait till you buy them some chicken nuggets. Desiring chicken nuggets is not unusual. It's not weird. There's a lot of little preschoolers in our church that would prefer chicken nuggets over a fine meal. But what makes it unhealthy and unwise is if the parents of those preschoolers only gave them chicken nuggets. Truth is, sometimes you got to eat your broccolis, amen? And your peas and your carrots. Sometimes you have to eat real chicken. <laughs> Here's where I think many of us are. I think many of us are in our prayer life before the Lord, satisfied with cheap imitation chicken nuggets. The Bible is very clear. You seek, you will find. You ask, you will receive. You knock and the door will be opened. You can shamelessly go up before the Father and He'll receive you and meet your needs. He desires to give you good gifts. But the testimony among us is that many of us say we do not have a personal experience of this. My pastoral heart is to say to you this morning, it is not because God is not able or willing or ready. It's because we're settling for the chicken nuggets instead of the fine meal. Dear friends, like little children, approach the Lord. Ask, seek, and knock. And the gift of the Holy Spirit the provision of salvation, the blessing of knowing the truth of God will be poured out in a greater manner than you can ever imagine. It's ready. He is ready to those who will seek, to those who will ask, to those who will knock.